The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Sporkbox. Here are your headlines this morning. Credit Suisse announces new details of its 4 billion Swiss francs capital increase as part of its sweeping overhaul plan. New shareholder of the Saudi National Bank tells CNBC the Swiss bank must urgently push on with its restructuring. From the plan that we saw, I just would urge them not to blink, uh, not to um, hesitate and just execute. The quicker the better. The Dow eyes its best month since January 1976 as Wall Street closes a volatile week with solid gains despite weakness in major tech stocks. Elsewhere, we've got the Chinese economic activity unexpectedly contracting in October as authorities ramp up restrictions to combat fresh COVID outbreaks in key manufacturing and financial hubs. Plus, the leftist leader Lula da Silva returns to the presidency in Brazil after a nail-biting runoff election victory over the incumbent president, Bolsonaro. Meanwhile, Elon Musk reportedly pushes forward with large layoffs at Twitter, but the billionaire social media owner denies the cuts are time to avoid employee stock payouts. Right. Uh, is there stability round the corner? Well, there's a metaphor for life, for the global economy, for politics. Good morning, Karen. Good morning. For perhaps my own life, but mostly for Credit Suisse, perhaps as well, because let's be honest about it. It has been a debacle of a few years over at this place. We talk about revolving credit in the world. Well, we talk about revolving CEOs and chairman over at Credit Suisse as well. Huge set of announcements that Jeff and Karen and the team were looking at last week, including the fact that the group uh, is looking to raise billions in capital, uh, huge losses, four billion Swissy third quarter loss as well. A huge plan, another strategic <coughs> revamp, a second in a year uh, under the CEO, Ulrich Kirner as well. Uh, he was saying, of course, it's a historic moment for Credit Suisse. Well, a few more details on what is happening. And of course, with the SMB. No, not that SMB, the other SMB. I know it's confusing, isn't it? Because you've got the Swiss National Bank over here, which is monitoring things uh, with a slight amount of concern, I would imagine, plus the other SMB, which is, of course, the Saudi National Bank, who are going to be coming in as the second largest shareholder after, let's be honest about it, the most beleaguered shareholding, perhaps, in banking of all time, Harris Associates. So we have a few more details uh, on the capital hike. It's going to be pricing shares at three Swissy 82 and as you can see that is a slight discount from the 393 we finally closed at on friday so raising uh, 462 million new shares at a purchase price of 382 uh, of course, as part of the plan to uh, restructure the embattled Swiss bank. There's plenty more details in there, uh, including one of the largest lists of banks you've ever seen, really, who are working uh, on this deal. Uh, I mean, think of a bank, really. They're all in there. Barclays, BNP, City, Commerce, Credit Agriculture, CIB, Goldman's. It goes on and on and on. Gross proceeds expected, as we said, and as you knew from last week, 4 billion Swissy as well. Uh, shareholders in Credit Suisse allotted one preemptive subscription right for each share they hold on November the 22nd of this year as well. 
Uh, following the share capital increase, Saudi National Bank, that's that SMB, not the other SMB, uh, is expected to hold 9.9% of Credit Suisse. Good morning, how are you? Good morning. You had a busy old week, didn't you? It, yes, it was a busy week, and I think what jumped out too was the griping around the investment from the Saudis, the petrodollars being poured in to support what is a very important institution in Switzerland. Really? So that's where some really? of the focus griping? was. I never hear that griping when the Norwegians jump in. I never hear that griping when it's a... Uh, one of the other big sovereign wealth funds. Why, why are they griping about petrodollars? Some of this is coming from the Swiss side that this is an institutionally important company in Switzerland and very much underpinning the financing, the structure of the economy, and that such a large chunk was uh, now being really handed over to the Saudis. And don't forget, this was well, a, a state the, where there were griping. concerns in recent years around the Khashoggi case yeah. and what it means in terms of some of these major issues. Right. Okay. So it's about is it about human rights or is it about petrodollars? Because I find that there's, there's something very strange going if someone's coming in and willing to put in vast amounts of capital itself, presumably other investors are, are, are would have been allowed to invest and presumably if you wanted to buy your shares in the open market at 393 you could buy as many as you wanted at the moment as well so so griping about someone who's coming in with four billion Swissy at 380, so I find that extraordinary. Yeah. I really do. Well, that was the Swiss line anyway. But I think uh, the other big uh, news was the share price reaction, the huge fall that we saw in the stock, uh, the reset. And if you look at the pricing of the shares today, below where we closed out on Friday, so that is interesting. But are we at a floor for the stock? I mean, the uh, selling that's taken place, uh, sort of a series of announcements that have come out from the company over the course of this year, being very negative for the share price, and then this huge reset again last week on the back of the capital raising. So. Uh, the big question is, are we at a floor as we talk about some of these new shareholders now also were forced to stay in investment? I, I, I think for me, to be honest, and, and, and again, I think the question for me is, what, what is Credit Suisse now? What is it after this huge reduction in large amounts of its activity, this latest revamp as well? Uh, and I have really only one question. Is it better than the rivals you can buy in the market, i.e. our viewers at the moment? Presumably they're buyers, mostly. There's not that many of our viewers who are short sellers, but of course they're welcome to do that as well. Is it better than the peers at the current value? And I do not have any clue if that is the case as well, because let's be honest about it, What's going on in the world is not just about Credit Suisse, it's about the entire sector as well. So is it better now than BNP, than HSBC, than Santander, than UBS? I don't have the answer to that question, but maybe some of our viewers and guests will as we move on. So as we've been hearing, the chairman of the Saudi National Bank has actually been talking about this, telling CNBC he wants to see Credit Suisse push ahead and, quote, not blink in its sweeping overhaul plans. Saudi's largest commercial bank is set to become one of Credit Suisse's major shareholders there. We just heard that, didn't we? 9.9 percent stake. Let's get up to uh, speed. Uh, because Hadley caught up with SMB's chair and she joins us now with Dan Murphy from Adipec conference in Abu Dhabi. Good morning to you both. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Karen. Great to be here and live from Adipec. And of course, Steve, we miss you, as I know, and I'm sure you miss being at Adipec. But as you say, I had the chance to catch up with the chairman of SMB, Saudi National Bank, Amr Al-Qadari, first on CNBC. And I asked him specifically about this purchase, 9.9% stake, $1.5 billion, And he told me it was a steal. Listen in. We do believe uh, this was a, a financial opportunistic investment. We got it at a floor price. Um, I think the bank has been battered um, excessively so on pricing wise. It's trading at uh, less than a quarter of book value, of tangible book value, which is which is a steal. Um, and it's a 160 year old brand. The brand has a lot of value. Uh, we looked at their um, uh, turnaround and recovery plan 
we like the story. There are risks, of course, uh, as would be with anything like that. But uh, the overall the overall story uh, um, uh, registered with us, and uh, we decided to go ahead and do it. I just want to put this into context. Uh, the investment we've made represents 2.2% of our investment book. It represents about yeah. three and a half months of earnings, net earnings. So, so I think the amount of media frenzy around it was um, way bigger than what it represents in terms of systemic relevance to uh, SMB. And beyond that, the investors in Credit Suisse who look at this and say they got in, they got in cheap, and they got a heck of a lot of this bank. Is that fair? Um, no, because they have the opportunity to re-up. There's going to be, as has been disclosed, um, a rights offering for the existing shareholders in a few weeks. And that'll happen at uh, perhaps even slightly cheaper price than where than where we got in. Um, for for sound reasons, uh, Credit Suisse could not do the entire amount on a um, on a rights offering basis because it takes too long and the certainty of outcome. Um, um, they wanted 100% certainty of, of outcome, and they balanced it. They did not do the full four billion uh, on a on a uh, on, on this uh, uh, format, nor did they do the full four billion on a, um, a rights offering. So I think they they struck the right balance in in terms of splitting it roughly 50-50. And just your thoughts on the overhaul. I mean, lots of things announced, lots of questions in the market, as I said. Anything in your mind that the bank really should be focusing on? From what from the plan that we saw, I just would urge them not to blink, uh, not to um, hesitate and just execute. The quicker, the better. Amar El-Kadari, they're the chairman of SNB, speaking to me first on CNBC, saying essentially when it comes to the overhaul, he wants to see them put the pedal to the floor in terms of moving ahead with um, their reforms. And it was interesting as well, you know, take a step back and remember, Saudi National Bank, the biggest shareholder, the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia. And I said, hey, did you get a call from Yasser? Is this how this all came about? And he said, essentially, no, this isn't just the PIF. This isn't just the PIF. This is also part of our strategy. Because as a bank, he said, Hadley, listen, you've seen us over the last several years. We are becoming more aggressive. We're becoming more ready to have international partners. And this is just a piece of that puzzle. Yeah, and also Saudi Arabia doing pretty well economically you right now. It. Oil prices have Running come down from $140 a barrel, but that's been a big coup for the economy. They've got money to deploy and opportunities to look for, so perhaps also part of the reason we've seen that. And yeah. Hadley, it's interesting just to look back at how the year has unfolded in oil. Atapec, of course, being the culmination of probably one of the most volatile years we've had in energy markets. Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the ESG trend, energy security, energy supply, all coming into focus this week as the conversation with top executives in the industry also sheds a light on what's going to happen next year, which Absolutely. I think is going to be really important to and look at. And record profits for these IOCs. I'm going to be sitting down with the CEOs of BP, NE, Vitol, as well as a few others later in the day, as well as on the Tashan, the special envoy uh, for energy from the U.S. State Department. And this is a man, of course, who's made multiple trips to this part of the world. He's been instrumental in all of those conversations, those, frankly, failed conversations when you think about that U.S.-Saudi yeah. spat. And one wonders, as I've been asking over the last couple of hours, where is Jennifer Granholm, the energy secretary of the United States? Because you'll remember, how many times did Rick Perry come to this part of the world? Mm -hmm. How many times did Dan Buryette come out here? Mm -hmm. And they had a constant dialogue yeah. with their counterparts. And that all came into focus last week at FII in Saudi Arabia. Top Wall Street executives on the ground there talking business and doing deals, but not a single U.S. official to have a conversation with the Saudis about the outlook for the energy market, which is part of the reason we see this rift emerging as well. 
I'm looking forward to your conversation with Amos because I hope you ask him where he was last week. Well, one of the big questions of, well, this is all coming into the U.S. midterms. We can't take a step away from that because this is something that the Americans say was part of the Saudis' decision, was part of the OPEC Plus plan, frankly, um, to have that kind of a fracas, if you will. But you've got to take a step back and remember, whatever you think of U.S. President Joe Biden, this is a man who has for years pushed that sort of image of, you know, spending big, liberals spend big, right? The question, of course, going forward is whether or not at some point within the next couple of years, depending on the outcome of these midterm elections, he's going to start to find a bridge with the international oil companies as well as with Wall Street. Yeah, especially with uh, gas prices in California still at around, on average, six yeah. US dollars a gallon. Well, there you go. Guys, we're going to head it back over to you. Hadley, Dan, thank you very much for bringing us the latest there. Important conversations where you take a look at the U.S. markets, uh, the action last week, very much focused around the tech reaction and uh, the news that was crossing over the course of the week is that revenues, earnings have been hit. As we see consumers take a slightly different approach at this point uh, on the back of the pandemic trends. We had a ton of spending on devices, also on consumption. And now with these very challenging macroeconomic uh, scenarios that we've been talking about, energy prices, cost of living crisis, food prices, it is starting to have an impact and uh, that was destroying some of the earnings profile for these big tech names that have already been battered on valuation. So what we saw as we closed out Friday was a slightly better day in lockstep for the major indices, bouncing across the board, as you can see, more than 2% plus. So a terrific old day playing out. But that said, this week, don't forget, we're now circling back to the Fed concerns about another 75 basis point rate hike being delivered. But what comes next in the market has had to, in recent weeks, guide towards a terminal rate of 5%. So it is going to be a challenging one as we take a look at the Fed and some think that the central bank will still be very hawkish in its commentary. And as we close out the trading week, don't forget we've got the jobs report. That's going to be key to inflation, which is what sort of wage pressures are we seeing from that labour market? Any cooling that the market will be looking for is going to be closely scrutinised. And let's just push on to what we had over the course of the trading month. A very different performances for parts of the U.S. market. You can see 5% high for Nasdaq, still fairly decent performance as it bounced off some of the lows. The S&P 500 up 8.8% for the month, so much stronger performance. And you can see uh, out of lockstep with the Nasdaq was the Dow Jones performance, 14% higher. So much stronger performance is what we saw from the Dow. As we take a look at some of the individual markets, you can see how it played out. We had uh, gains that really progressed over the course of the trading month. Some of this down to the banks for the Dow. You can see uh, the bounce to the extent 14.4%. Uh, very strong double-digit performance. As you take a look elsewhere, uh, compare this to the Nasdaq, and you can see how it traded uh, choppy, really seeing some down moments uh, during the middle of the month before trying to gain towards the back end of the trading month. That said, uh, the FANGs uh, component of the Nasdaq clearly, and this is the performance for some of those stocks of the month. Apple, one of the decent contributors, 12.6%. Uh, a lot of heavy lifting from the Cupertino giant. The Alphabet performance, barely positive. Microsoft, again, another market leader for some of these major entities, only just in uh, positive territory over about 1%. Much stronger levels, as you can see, for Netflix, 25% high as we talk about contributors. And uh, the weaker performers, I mean, Meta, this has uh, been very much a widowmaker's trade this year, down 26%. A lot of this really coming in one day of trade on Thursday, down 25%, a quarter of the valuation destroyed in one day on the back of revenues declining, but also stepped up investments in the face of the declining earnings. That was what investors took issue with. Amazon stock as well, also pulling back 8.5% over the trading month.
The uh, other trades we're looking at, we can show you the dollar index in this context. And this has been a headwind for some of those uh, major U.S. companies. The uh, trade around the dollar index just coming off of the month, a slight dip, 1.1%. So a slight change for that narrative of dollar is king, not exactly stretching out the position. Uh, I think uh, it was worthwhile seeing the back end of the month counteracted some of the high ranges that we saw during the earlier parts of the month, Steve. Uh, ben Emmons, Managing Director of Global Macro Strategy at Medlo Global. Advisors. Good morning to you, Ben. Thank you for sticking with us. We had to get that Credit Suisse news out of the way. And um, what's going on in the markets? Extraordinary oscillation in equities as well. Is it all about the pivot or is there something else more interesting going on? Good morning. Well, it's certainly about the pivot on the one hand. You know, people are hoping still that the central banks can shift down and this tightening that we've been in now the entire year. And so they took cue from the Bank of Canada and they're going to take cue overnight here from the Australian Central Bank and even the European Central Bank. People, you know, sought out sort of this language of, yes, they, you, you could shift down. They're all extrapolating that to the Federal Reserve on, on Wednesday that they may say that too. But I would really caution here because on the one hand, there is a weakness of the economy. But on the other hand, they really sticky inflation. The, the core PC data on Friday with the Dallas Fed trim mean infla inflation just showed too much broadening of inflation and too elevated. So I don't think the Federal Reserve is in a position really to uh, signal that there's going to be a downshift in tightening, but the market seems to be speculating. So that's, I think, what we're in right now, uh, the reality of sticky inflation, but market speculation on the change in the future. But why, why should my viewers, our viewers, buy equities when all the concerns are still there? You just mentioned about inflation, about earnings, about the consumer, uh, about the growth of revolving credit, very expensive credit, about the cost of money, uh, about the underlying economy as well. Why? What is the reason why our viewers should get on board with the rally that happened on Friday and ignore that? What's the key here? Well, the real key is that you know, the next three to six, maybe to nine months, really that most of the economies are hitting the recession and then the real dynamic changes at least that's the calculation you know because if we assume that inflation is still very much sensitive to a recession that starts to decline that's i think the reason why people want to take on risk unless that calculation is wrong and we do revisit what happened in the 1970s we have a stagflation so there's some of our optimism that you know, the tightening that we've put in the system from all central banks is really playing out, really working. And therefore, recession will be the, I say, the solution to this pandemic inflation, call it that way. You know, you could caution that, but that's where the hopes are and why people want to step in the markets. Ben, can I ask you about the big tech wash-up after we saw the earnings cross last week? A lot of the earnings were just not great reading and we saw negative reaction uh, mostly across the board. Apple was a slight exception, slightly more resilient. But what do you make of now th this further reset we've had in terms of valuations? Uh, certainly it's coming much better in line now. We, you know, we're back to historical averages. So I think we've really priced out the, let's say, the froth from the pandemic, the major infusion into these stocks, and that you're having now EPS estimates that are just more historically reasonable aligned. So it's estimates, but analysts think that in the next sort of two to three years, EPS growth will be back to normal sort of 10 to 15% for most of those major tech companies. So as they scale back on some of the spending, uh, at the same time, they can recover in the future because there's always going to be this demand for technology. So my take from it is we're in the trough here of, of say, the decline in earnings. 
and you should come out of this negativity into the next quarter. That, of course, be another supporting factor for benchmark indices, given that the weight of these stocks are so significant in each benchmark index. What do you make of Meta, though, in that trade? As you talk about scaleback spending, I mean, Meta was the company that came out last week and said they were going to be spending close to $40 billion on bulk of it, really around AI at a time when revenues were falling. That is not exactly cutting back, and the market took such a dim view of it. Yeah, and that's where the sensitivity market is, because you, you cannot indeed spend all this money on, 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 let's say, an investment that still has to be paid off sometime in the future. It's very unknown what the metaverse really will be in terms of true tangible value to, to the company of, of Meta. And therefore, markets see that as a negative, because at the same time, there's a slowdown in, in uh, services demand, a slowdown in demand for, for Meta in general. And I think this is why the market is so sensitive. But on the other hand, you have other companies like Apple and Google that have not, and that's kind of a spending binge, but have a lot of demand for their services. And I think this is why you have that distinction between these stocks and why I think people are probably somewhat more optimistic that bigger companies like Google and Apple can pull through and come back to a more positive, healthy growth pattern compared to the pandemic phase. Uh, Ben, I I liked your piece called Salad Days. Very amusing. You were referring, of course, to a lettuce out surviving uh, Liz Truss as prime minister, which is uh, much talked about on social media. Um, Is the crisis over politically and indeed, dare I say, in terms of a a sovereign level for the UK compared with the rest of the world, i.e. is the extra beta or alpha, whatever you want to call it, on top of the UK crisis? Has that gone now? And it's to an extent gone. You know, it is important that the fiscal discipline is maintained, but there is also that sensitivity again, just like with tax spending or overspending in a in a downturn situation. If you applying too much austerity in a downturn, there could be that risk again of that stagflationary outcome. So I think the risk is at least largely gone because the market is really upset about that the, that you're going to spend way too much into a into a recession and you know borrow that money against you know, an energy price that is highly fluctuating. But that's really what the idea of the trust administration was. That's taken out, and that's why guild yields have have normalized to an extent. But as we're coming up on the Bank of England's meeting this week. Uh, they have no choice but to raise rates by 75 and probably do that in several increments of 75 to ensure that the inflation remains relatively under control, which is difficult at the moment. But you also have to maintain this fiscal discipline. So the crisis is gone, but not entirely, I think. All right, Ben. Lovely to see you today. It's still Sunday for you, isn't it? Uh, 20 past uh, 11. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but you don't want to, you don't want to Monday. It's, it's, it's Halloween with nightmare. Children everywhere. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Ben. Uh, <laughs> dreading you. it. Uh, ben Emmons, Managing Director, Global Macro Strategy, Medley Global Advice. You doing Halloween? I have You're my sending mask out your husband ready to, to go. Do? No, what? of course. Not outsourcing that. It's one of the real joys for the year, trick-or-treating. Are you dressing up? Of course I am. I will be a black cat. You're not, you're not dressing up. Uh, am I dressing up? No, I'm turning off all the lights and, and, and sticking out a don't come near me sign. Well, out of candy already. <laughs> no, I mean, luckily, my youngest went to a party yesterday, so hopefully that's all gone and done. Uh, anyway, meanwhile, uh, the Feds, we used to do uh, Guy Fawkes, kind of, you know, um, was it Penny yes. for the Guy? Yes. Is it Penny for the Guy? It was Penny for the Guy. Yeah, yeah, now it's all Halloween.
Dreadful. Uh, the Fed's preferred measure of inflation came in close to forecast in September, as just Ben was mentioning. PC inflation rose by 0.3% on the month or 6.2% on the year. Uh, the core reading, which strips out food and energy costs, came in at 0.5% higher versus August. Uh, the Fed is widely expected to announce another 75 basis point hike at its meeting on Wednesday. Well, what kind of cat? Well, just like you've got the tail, you've got the whole lot. No, I've got the mask and the little shiny nose. Don't think I'm particularly scary. Very Halle Berry, isn't it? Very Catwoman. You know, you know, perhaps that's slightly different. Anyway, coming up on the show, uh, Russia has pulled out of a, a grain export deal with Ukraine, sending wheat and maize futures high. We'll discuss. And uh, don't forget, you can stay up to date with all the swings in the markets, including uh, the beleaguered lender Credit Suisse, by subscribing to the Squawk Box podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Russia has pulled out of the UN-backed grain deal that initially unblocked exports from Ukraine. The Kremlin said it was reacting to a drone attack by Ukraine on a fleet near the port of Sevastopol in Russian annexed Crimea. Now, Moscow's latest action has attracted global condemnation with U.S. President Joe Biden calling it outrageous. Ukraine's allies have called on Russia to reverse the decision, with the U.N. saying it is now engaging in intense talks to mediate on the issue. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky said Russia is escalating the global food price crisis. So far, the facts indicate that the Russian leadership is more interested in aggravating the food crisis than in fulfilling the signed documents. And this, by the way, is the answer to everyone who talks about negotiations with Russia. Just worth pointing out on markets too, uh, Chicago wheat futures leapt more than 8%, uh, currently travelling at a two-week high at $8.93 a bushel in early trade. Uh, we flipped back uh, a little bit lower to uh, 8.78, but uh, here's a look at wheat futures, as you can see, in trade. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.